Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Greg DeFelice from the Hospital for Special Surgery about his paper entitled, Patients Forget About Their Operated Knee More Following Arthroscopic Primary Repair of the Anterior Cruciate Ligament Than Following Reconstruction, which was published in the March 2020 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. Greg, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. You know, I think that uh, you were on the podcast last year with Chris Tucker, so actually I should be saying welcome back to the podcast. Um, ACL repair continues to be a rather controversial topic, and so I'm excited to be talking to you more about this procedure. So let's get right into it. Just when we thought that we had reached the limit of new patient-reported outcomes, you and your group are reporting on the results of, of what's called the Forgotten Joint Score Instrument. Why don't you give the listeners an overview of this tool, why you looked at it, and why we should care about it in assessing outcomes after ACL surgery? Sure. You know, I didn't know about the FJS-12, the Forgotten Joint Score 12. It was one of my research assistants, Dr. Vanderlist, and he had worked previously in the arthroplasty literature where this score came out. And it was originally developed to try and Uh, tweak out the differences between total knees and partial knees. Because most of us who do partial knees know that they tend to feel better than the total knees. And a lot of us surmise that it's because you keep the cruciate ligaments and, and a good portion of the knee, so they feel more normal. But as we all know, it's really hard to measure how you feel. So they came up with this score, the FJS 12, and it essentially asks a series of 12 questions to the patient about how often they think about their knee during the activities of daily living. And so say the first question is, how often do you think about your knee when you're in bed at night? And how often do you think about your knee when you're taking a walk, when you're getting up from a chair, all the way up to sports? And they can quantify whether it's never or frequently or seldom, et cetera. And then you tally it up and you get a score. And that was validated, and it was used to show that the patients who'd had partial knees actually had less joint awareness, which is a, a good thing, than the total knees. I mean, after all, if you if you never, ever think about your operative knee, wouldn't that be kind of the best outcome? And what we try and do as surgeons is, is we always try and measure the objective data. Is the knee stable? Are you able to run? Can you walk up and down the stairs? But this was really kind of the first one that, that really tries to hone in on how your knee feels. And it was validated in the arthroplasty literature. And then later it was validated for ACL reconstruction surgery. And so uh, Dr. Vanderlist suggested that we start collecting this data on my repair patients so we could try and get an idea of which patients feel better, the repairs or the recons. And, uh, you know, probably five years ago, I guess now, uh, we started collecting this data and we were able to get a nice cohort together. I think it's probably the first one out there looking at this forgotten joint score instrument in this kind of population. So why don't you summarize the one or two key findings that you want the readers to take away from this paper? Sure, I'd be happy to. 
We looked at 83 patients and divided them up into two groups, ones who'd had the repair and ones who had had the reconstruction. And um, what we found, and we know from the other literature that a normal patient who's never had knee surgery or injured their knee scores roughly around 88 to 90. And when we tallied up all the data between the repairs and the reconstructions, we found that the repairs scored much higher than the reconstructions. In fact, the repairs were just shy of the normal uh, patients scoring on average 85.3, whereas the reconstruction scored uh, way down at 70. So this was a, a very significant difference in how often patients are thinking about their knee. And, you know, we, we have a lot of other measures that we measure. And, you know, we measure the Lysome scores, we measure IKDCs, and we, we try to get objective measurements as to how stable the knee is, how well the patient's are functioning, whether they've returned to sport. We just published that in the journal, The Knee. And we try and cover as many metrics as we can to show that the repair patients are doing well. And this is just another one of the variables. But it's one that most people aren't familiar with. And it's an important thing. Like I said, if, if you never think about your operative knee, then that's going to be the best outcome. And we undertook the study really to show what we see in the office because once I, when I started doing ACL repairs way back about 12 years ago, the one thing that I noticed is my patients come back to the office and they say that they're so much further ahead than all the patients who had reconstructions. And they tell me, many of them tell me after you know, two or three months that they don't even think about their operative knee. And that's, it's so different than when you have a reconstruction. I mean, this week, it's funny, uh, I've seen many patients back in the office this week who had surgery uh, just before the pandemic hit. And it's really been uh, an interesting uh, example, and I was looking forward to sharing it with you because I've seen multiple patients back who literally right before the hammer dropped on the pandemic, one of my patients had surgery on March 13th, and that was the last day we did surgery. And she went... Uh, had the ACL repair, went home. She wasn't able to get to therapy because of the pandemic. Everything shut down. And she kind of did it on her own through some telehealth. And she came in today, three months out, full range of motion and and told me, Doc, my knee feels great. Uh, I don't really even think about it. Is, is it okay if I go back to the gym? And it's that kind of dramatic difference that has led me to do all this research. And it led me to publish this paper, most of us who do ACLs know that, yes, people do very well with reconstructions, but most of them have some sort of little complaint that maybe it's hard to kneel or maybe they can't sit for a long time or it's, uh, it's hard to squat. And so what I find is the patients who have the repairs, they just tend to feel better. So, I mean, in, in that sense, it's, it seems like it's kind of a no-brainer than marrying up this, this forgotten joint score with with this intervention that you've been doing for a long time and, and advocating for? Well, I think the forgotten joint score, there's merit to it. And I think as, as ACL surgeons, we, you know, we always used to measure everything uh, with objective measurement scores and, and we, we hung our hat on the objective measurements. And then we got into the uh, patient re reported outcome measures and trying to grasp a hold of how the patients feel they're doing because there was a dichotomy there. The, the, the surgeons thought we were doing 
the patients were doing better than the patients actually felt. And so I think it's so it behooves us to keep trying to hone in on what makes a good outcome. And for me, I've found that I, I treat my patients with a selective approach. I call it preservation first. So I try and preserve the ligament before I go ahead and reconstruct it. And this paper, and because of all the, the, the research that I've tried to share with everyone, I think we're over 30 papers now that we've published in the ligament repair space, is that I don't think, in fact, in my practice, I know that not everyone needs a reconstruction. Now, some people argue that, well, that, well, people don't need any surgery at all. And I'm not so sure that's the case because we all know that chronically lax knees with, with chronic ACL deficiency end up having a lot more problems down the line. I think the reason we think that way is because we've only had two options until now. We've had if you're athletic and you torn your ACL and you have a symptomatic laxity, then you you get a big surgery, the reconstruction. And then if you you don't fit those criterion, then you just you don't get any surgery and you get conservative treatment. Well, now we have an option for people for those people who have the appropriate type of tears that they can get a very small surgery and get a stable knee without going through the drama of an ACL reconstruction. And all of the papers that we've been publishing and furthermore, people all over the world are starting to publish are showing that, you know what? The failure rates aren't nearly as bad as they used to be back in the 70s when they did an open repair for any type of tear. Everyone who had an ACL injury got an open repair, regardless of whether it was in the mid-substance, and they were put in a cast for several months. And we all know that that didn't work so well, and that when you even when you look at the long-term data, it shows that roughly 50% of them failed. But you can also look back at that data and show that 50% of them were probably mid-substance tears, and we know that those don't, don't, don't do well. And the ones that actually did well did well all the way out to 30 years. So there was recent paper uh, by Engelbretson's group and 30-year follow-up of his prospective look at repair versus synthetic augmentation versus reconstruction. And it was published probably in the late 80s, I think. And it was a landmark paper of the time. And it said, as most of the papers of that time said, that open repair was not reliable. And they just published the 30-year follow-up, and it showed that the people who had reconstruction did better than the people who had repairs when taken as a whole. But what it didn't show is that all the repair patients did poorly. And we know that a bunch of them failed right in the beginning, which is why there was a difference. But what they showed actually supported repair because 30 years down the line, all the people that did well with a repair were still doing well. And those people, according to my research and my belief, those people were the ones with the proximal tears with good tissue quality. So you could just kind of stitch it back to the wall. So I'll play devil's advocate, though, for a minute with respect to your paper. I noticed that the ages of the two cohorts were significantly different. Isn't it possible that the older patients, the ones that score higher on the forgotten joint score, are perhaps just asking less of their knee? And that it's the younger patients are the ones that are more likely to, to truly test their knee. Might that not be a explanation of, of why you're seeing the 
uh, difference between the two groups? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll pointedly address that. I, first of all, in the paper, the, the, the differences between the the age groups, it wasn't that great. I think it was 34 versus 29 or something like that. So it's not like it was a 35-year-old group versus a 21-year-old group. And I do agree that the younger patients put their knee to the test far, far more than the older patients do. And that's something to look at. But this is testing just how much you think about your knee. This is testing like, you know, did you wake up in the middle of the night because your knee hurt? And I'm not sure that really has uh, any effect of the point you're trying to make. In addition, the distribution of, of patients and the variance was actually rather similar. So the the older group did include younger patients. And when we corrected for that and did multivariate analysis, we didn't find any significant differences based directly on age. So I hear you. I think that that's always an argument with ACLs, but I don't want to lose the importance of this paper because we do ACL reconstructions on older patients and younger patients. And the younger patients fail at a much higher rate, regardless of what surgery you do. And uh, I think a lot of the older papers out there uh, were hamstrung by the fact that they they mixed they didn't they didn't match them by age. So what I will tell you is that I'm up over 300 ACL repairs, and what we have found is that and we we freely admit because we're trying to let people learn from our experience is that the younger patients, the under 21 crowd, definitely has a higher failure rate when we use ACL repair uh, techniques. And we, we have a paper in submission that breaks down the outcomes based upon age groups from under 21 versus 21 to 35 versus 35 and up. In my practice with repair, if the patient's uh, under 21 and, and has a, like a level one cutting sport that they're active in, then I'll, I'll lean more towards putting a graft in with the repair. So I'll augment the repair nowadays. If they're over 21, the failure rates were very modest. And so we'll still do repair on folks uh, in that age group. So I don't think that, that people should dismiss these results based upon the age, but I do think ACL repair should be used with a little more caution in the under 21-year-old crowd. It's not that it shouldn't be done. For example, I had a patient who was a diver and she slipped coming off the diving board and she tore her ACL. So she's really not at a, in a high risk group to re-tear her ACL. And it just so happened she had a perfect tear right off the bone and we were able to repair her. She had a very quick recovery and uh, she's doing very well and hasn't had any issues. That's very different than a, you know, a 15 year old girl who's going to go back and play soccer. So. I hear you, but I'm not. I'm not going to dismiss these uh, findings uh, due to age. Hey, I have to be a devil's advocate here every once in a while. I can't just. I can't just invite everybody on here and ask the easy questions. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're not going to drink the Kool Aid straight away. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, and I've and I've had the, the the pleasure of hearing you speak on the podium, and 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 the last couple times that that I've heard you speak, I appreciate the fact that you are nuanced in terms of discussing your indications. It's not a panacea. It's not one size fits all. And I think that, um, I think the listeners appreciate the fact that as a 
comprehensive ACL surgeon, I think one of the big messages here is have a lot of different arrows in your quiver, right? Absolutely, man. I, th- you know, I mean, I think we should have as many tricks up our sleeve as we can. And this is not an answer for every ACL tear. Uh, I think that I'm, I'm very intrigued by the ALL data and where that's going for the younger patients. I, I do think that there's probably different injury patterns between the younger patients versus the older patients who tend to get hurt with seemingly insignificant uh, trauma. And, and they also have a, a much higher incidence of proximal tears, which are amenable to repair. You know, in my practice, the over 35 crowd, I probably repair, I would say in that age group, I probably repair over 75% of them. And we've had excellent results with less than 5% retail rate in that age group. The large majority of the ones that I see in that age group are amenable to repair. You know, I'm known as the repair guy, so people come to me for this. So you do have to take that with a little grain of salt. But I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, people are getting their MRIs and saying, I have a repairable tear. I'm going to go to Dr. DeFelice. The majority uh, of them say, I tore my ACL. I'm going to go and see if he can repair it. So it's not too biased. And this has come up in the last couple pods that I've recorded on on ACLs is you know, with the failure rates continuing to be what they are, I think it behooves us to continue to press the envelope. You know, innovation is a big thing right now, and that's been written a lot. Dr. Burkhart just published a, a great lecture on on innovation and the way in which that he approached innovation throughout his career and was met early on with challenges from the establishment. And so I think that it, it behooves us to continue to pay attention to the folks that are under innovating and, and, and taking, you know, somewhat unique nuanced approaches to a problem that remains vexing for, for virtually all of us. So I really appreciate your time uh, this evening talking to us about your paper, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a little harder to get together right now with the pandemic, but thankfully uh, technology is helping us along so that we kind of keep the discussion going. Cause that's what this is. It's a discussion from the very first time I gave my lecture, first lecture, 2012, you know, arthroscopic ACL repair at the uh, emerging techniques conference in Vegas. There were crickets in the audience. Everybody was looking around saying, is this guy crazy? What's he talking about? <laughs> you know, I and I said in my, uh, my talk, my goal is not to tell you what's right and wrong. My goal is to simply fan the flames of this discussion. And, and thankfully, it's, it's taken off, and it really is a big discussion now as people weigh in from all over the world as to their experiences and their techniques. You know what they say is, is if they're not talking about what you're doing, then what you're doing is not very important. And this year alone in the world literature, there were eight systematic reviews on arthroscopic ACL repair. So using that as a metric, I think, uh, I think we're making some headway and there's, there's some significant interest that's been, been drummed up. Dr. DeFelice's paper entitled, Patients Forget About Their Operated Knee More Following Arthroscopic Primary Repair of the Anterior Cruciate Ligament Than Following Reconstruction was published in March of 2020 and can currently be accessed online at www.arthroscopyjournal.com.